The views and opinions expressed on the Wire and Wick podcast are solely those of the contributors and do not reflect those of our sponsors or distributors. This podcast contains adult language and themes. Listener discretion is advised. It's the Wire and Wick podcast with your host, Chris Carlson. Yes, it is the Wine and Wick Podcast. I am your host. My name is Chris Carlson, and we use sex to sell everything but arrest those who buy and sell actual sex. Episode 31, recorded Monday, May 16th, 2016. How you guys doing this week? I had a good week this past week, and a bad week, and I'll explain why in a minute, but... I, I think it's kind of funny. I, I had a lot of overtime this week is why it was a good and a bad week. It was a good week because that means it's going to be really nice paychecks this upcoming week, which is really helpful. Bills are coming in, all that shit, working on paying down credit cards, working on getting a house. Uh, so we got to put some money aside. So this overtime is great for that. It's great to have overtime, but it sucks because I have no time to myself. And that is really the catch 22 of work, isn't it? We, we work so that we have money to to spend on our hobbies but in order to get money we have no time to spend on our hobbies it's it's a real juggling act isn't it i mean at the end of the day i i i I worked a lot of overtime so i have a lot more money to to spend but i worked a lot of overtime so i have a lot less time to spend on things that i want to do it is what it is i'll take the extra money i could use the extra money right now so Good on you, work, for giving me that overtime. I got to tell you guys a follow-up story to something that I was talking about, I believe, a couple weeks ago. Um, I'm not exactly sure which episode I talked about how I'm kind of cheap, uh, how I could not buy tickets to a show that I wanted to go see because of an $11 service fee. Uh, if you missed it, I'll catch you up real quick. Tickets to this show that I really wanted to go to were $22 a ticket, and I was fine with that. I put the two tickets into the cart, go to checkout, and I see that there is an $11 service fee. That is 25% of the total cost of the two tickets. 50% of a single ticket in service fees, and I couldn't justify that. I'm totally fine with spending, and it's the weird thing about me here, was I was totally fine with spending $44 on two tickets, but I wasn't okay with an extra $11. And what's $11, you know, compared to $44? To me, it was a big deal um, because it was not something that I was told I was going to be spending. Well, that kind of attitude paid off this week because I went to that show. And let me tell you why I went to that show. I went to that show because I found somebody who had purchased two tickets and was unable to go. Very unfortunate. I'm very sorry for them, but they were selling the tickets at $10 a piece because the show wasn't sold out. There were more tickets available. He was just trying to recoup some of his money for the tickets that he had bought. So he 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 gave them away for $10 each. So because I refused to pay that $11, I saved $34. So who's a winner? This guy's a winner. Any of you guys who were listening to that episode before and thinking to yourself, what a cheap ass. Dude can't get himself to spend $11. He really wants to go to that show. He must not want to go to the show that bad. I did want to go to the show that bad, but I had something in the back of my head that would not let me spend that money. And it's unfortunate. I really don't like that there's that part of me in my brain, but that part of me exists. And that part of me is a very strong part of me. But who's laughing now? 
I got to go to the show that I really wanted to go to, and I saved $34. That is a win in my book. Got a couple autographs, got some pictures with the people that I wanted to see. It was a good time. It was a great experience, and the fact that I saved money the whole time just made it so much sweeter. And speaking of sweet, how you like that for a segue? I want to talk about something else that I, I, I had an issue with this week. Um, so I, I, I'm at my sister's birthday. It was her birthday this past weekend. And uh, she had her birthday at this place called Wahoo's. It's a like a family fun zone kind of thing. Uh, picture like an amusement park scaled down. Um, that's essentially what you'd have here. Well, they have a bar. At, at, at this place. And so I, I go over to the bar, um, hanging out with my mom and my, we were over at the bar and I see the drink menu and I think, you know what I want to try? I want to try this strawberries and cream is the drink that I wanted to try. And what it was, was strawberry vodka, strawberry soda, and half and half. Sounds delicious. Sounds fantastic. So I order it. They bring the drink over. It's, it's pink with half and half on top of it. So pink and white swirls all through it. The, the most unmanly looking drink that you can possibly get was the one that I got. And of course, because I got such an unmanly drink, my mom decided to give me shit for it. Give me a hard time. Talk about, she asks the bartender as soon as the drink comes over, she goes, let me ask you something. Do you get a lot of men who order these sissy drinks? And he laughs and says, you know what? That's the majority of people who buy these drinks. And I'm going to tell you why I think that men buy these sissy drinks more than women buy those drinks. And I think that the reason why is because we don't have anything to compensate for. The men who are buying those drinks, those sissy drinks, are the men who realize, hey, sometimes straight liquor, not that great. Beer, tastes like piss. I hate beer. I can't drink beer. And I've mentioned this before, I cannot do beer. But I know that and I don't have anything to prove. I'm not trying to show off to anybody. So I order girly drinks. And guess what? Those girly drinks, they're fucking delicious. They taste so good. And that one was no different. Shit tasted like like strawberry ice cream. Mm. And the best part was strawberry ice cream that gets you drunk. I, I, I challenge you to find a better substance in, in the world, a, a better substance that is consumable than strawberry ice cream that gets you drunk. There isn't one. The closest thing is all illegal at that point. This is something that's legal. I think it's a little bit fucked up that they serve uh, full booze. I get beer, but I think that it's a little bit weird that they serve a full bar with with hard liquor at at a family fun center. But I guess you got to keep the parents sane somehow. I think that's what the beer would be for. But I guess some parents need a little bit extra to take the edge off. But I'll tell you what, having a couple drinks and then going over to go-karts on a slick track, nothing like it, you guys. All the fun of go-karts plus being buzzed and you can't get pulled over for it. It's not illegal. No DUIs. Everybody's safe. Good times were had by me and my sissy drinks that tasted fantastic. All right, moving forward, we got a bit of a different show for you guys this week. I'm going to be trying something a little bit different. Um, 
It's going to be something for the next few weeks that we're going to be doing. And that is a segment that I'm going to be calling the road to regulation. This is going to be part one of the road to regulation and what that means and what that is will make more sense when we get to it. But that is going to be segment one of the show. After that, we're going to talk about trigger warnings and why in the army you are not a special snowflake. It's the Wire and Wick podcast. Stick around. We'll be right back. And we are back this week and for the following weeks, we're going to be doing something a little different for the first segment of the show. Uh, rather than talking about the newest devices, drama and things like that, uh, I'm going to be starting a, a multi-part segment explaining how the regulations came to be, in my opinion, and why you should be more than outraged over how the government has chosen to treat vaping. Uh, so welcome to part one of How Did We Get Here? The Road to Regulation. This week, we're going to be discussing the Master Settlement Agreement, or the MSA. For starters, what is the MSA? The Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement, or MSA, was entered in November 1998, originally between the four largest United States tobacco companies, Philip Morris Incorporated, R.J. Reynolds, Brown and Williamson, and Lorillard, henceforth to be known as the Original Participating Manufacturers, or OPMs, and the Attorneys General of 46 states. The states settled their Medicaid lawsuits against the tobacco industry for recovery of their tobacco-related health care costs and also exempted the companies from private tort liabilities regarding harm caused by tobacco use. In exchange, the companies agreed to curtail or cease certain tobacco mar- certain tobacco marketing practices, as well as to pay in perpetuity various annual payments to the states to compensate them for some of the medical costs of caring for persons with smoking-related illnesses. The money also funds a new anti-smoking advocacy group called the American Legacy Foundation that is responsible for such campaigns as The Truth. The settlement also dissolved the tobacco industry group's Tobacco Institute, the Center for Indoor Air Research, and the Council for Tobacco Research. In the MSA, the OPMs agreed to pay a minimum of $206 billion over the first 25 years of the agreement. We start the road to the MSA in the 1950s when doctors began linking smoking to lung cancer. By the mid-1950s, Individuals in the United States began to sue the companies responsible for manufacturing and marketing cigarettes for damages related to the effects of smoking. In the 40 years through 1994, over 800 private claims were brought against tobacco companies in state courts across the country. The individuals asserted claims for negligent manufacture, negligent advertising, fraud, and violation of various state consumer excuse me, consumer protection statutes. The tobacco companies enjoyed great success in these lawsuits. Only two plaintiffs ever prevailed, and both of those decisions were reversed on appeal. As scientific evidence mounted in the 1980s, tobacco companies claimed 
contributory negligence as the adverse health effects were previously unknown or lacked substantial credibility. In the mid-1990s, more than 40 states commenced litigation against the tobacco industry seeking monetary, equitable, and injunctive reliefs, relief under various consumer protection and antitrust laws. The general theory of these lawsuits was that the cigarettes produced by the tobacco industry contributed to health problems among the population, which, in turn, resulted in significant costs to the state's public health systems. As Missouri Attorney General Mike Moore declared, quote, the lawsuit is premised on a simple notion. You caused the health crisis. You pay for it, unquote. Faced with the prospect of defending multiple actions nationwide, the OPMs sought a congressional remedy, primarily in the form of a national legislative settlement. In June 1997, the National Association of Attorneys Generals and the OPMs jointly petitioned Congress for a global resolution. On June 20, 1997, Mississippi Attorney General Michael Moore and a group of other attorneys general announced the details of the settlement. The settlement included a payment by the companies of $365.5 billion, agreement to possible Food and Drug Administration regulation under certain circumstances, and stronger warning labels and restrictions on advertising. In exchange, the companies would be freed from class action suits and litigation costs would be capped. The final settlement was not the MSA, but closely resembled what we would eventually end up with. However, four states, Mississippi, Florida, Texas, and Minnesota, settled with the OPMs before the MSA. The OPMs pay these four states, the previously settled states, 17% of the MSA per cigarette payment amount for each cigarette sold in any state. Thus, the OPMs pay the settling and previously settled states 104.5% of the per cigarette amount for each cigarette sold. In 2005, OPM payments totaled 2.2 cents per cigarette or $4.40 per carton. In November of the following year, the attorneys generals of the remaining 46 states, as well as the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands entered into the Master Settlement Agreement with the four largest manufacturers of cigarettes in the United States, the previously mentioned OPMs. The MSA included many different conditions for compliance by the OPMs, but the one we're going to focus on for this segment is to make annual payments to the settling states in perpetuity. In the 10 years following the settlement, many state and local governments have opted to sell so-called tobacco bonds. They are a form of securitization. In many cases, the bonds permit state and local governments to transfer the risk of declines in future master settlement agreement payments to bondholders. In some cases, however, the bonds are backed by secondary pledges of state or local revenues, which creates what some see as a perverse incentive to support the tobacco industry on whom they are now dependent for future payments against this debt. And this brings us to today. Tobacco revenue has fallen more quickly than projected when the securities were created, leading to technical defaults in some states. 
Some analysts predict that many of the bonds will default entirely. Many of the longer-term bonds have been downgraded to junk ratings, and more recently, financial analysts began raising concerns that the rapid growth of electronic cigarette market is accelerating the decline of $97 billion outstanding in tobacco bonds. States with large populations such as New York and California are affected to a greater degree than others. Lawmakers in several states proposed measures to tax e-cigarettes like traditional tobacco products to offset the decline in MSA revenue. They anticipate that taxing or banning e-cigarettes would be beneficial to the sale of combustible cigarettes. And this pretty much wraps up what we have in the MSA on the surface. Obviously, there's a whole lot more if you dive into the legal terms, as well as, like I said, the dissolving of certain research groups that were pro-tobacco and the forming of anti-smoking groups that are now harming the revenue that states were expecting. Ultimately, what this comes down to is what we talk about every time, and this is what we're going to be talking about with every segment of this road to regulation. Um, I guess, uh, not segment, but this road to regulation bit that we're doing here. And, and that is follow the money. You can always find out why these laws are being passed, why they are being so aggressive towards the e-cigarette market when you follow the money. And that's what we're doing here when we're unpacking the MSA. We're seeing that at first, the MSA was a great thing. It was a very good idea. It was something that gave states the ability to to offset their their Medicaid costs and their Medicare costs at 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 the expense of big tobacco, who was causing all of these problems. It was a fantastic idea until they formed the anti-smoking groups with the money and it started working to some degree. We saw that tobacco revenue started going down. They can't have that because they have now sold their MSA money as bonds to private stockholders who the states are now essentially in debt billions of dollars to. And now that the e-cigarette market is rising and taking a big chunk of the pie from big tobacco, the states are seeing that they're going to default on these loans and they're going to go bankrupt against these shareholders who are banking on this $206 billion that's supposed to be coming in that's no longer coming in, that's starting to dry up. We've said it before on previous episodes. You look at the rate of, of decline for tobacco smoking in the past two years, and it's greater than the past five years combined. So they're, they're not expecting it. They weren't expecting this market. And I've said it many times before to many different people, this is a very disruptive market. The e-cigarette market is one that is shaking a lot of trees, that's pissing a lot of people off, and is making us no friends whatsoever as far as government is concerned. Sure, it's saving our lives, but what it's also doing is costing them a lot of money. As we can see in this first segment with the MSA, we're costing private shareholders who own local governments, we're costing them $206 billion because we are a market that is effective. We are the first, really, to have such high efficacy rates to quit smoking. And that is rubbing a lot of people the wrong way. Like I said, and like I'm going to be saying every week for the next few weeks, 
follow the money. You'll see why this is happening. I wanted to put this out here as well as the coming segments to, to really tell you why you should be mad about this, why you should be fighting the FDA more than just because of your right to vape, but because it's fundamentally un-American what's going on. And I would recommend that you play this segment for anybody that you know that's interested in this. Maybe not someone who vapes, someone who's not really going to be affected by the the FDA regulations. Play it for them. Let them know why they should be with you, why you are upset, why it makes sense that you are upset, and why they should be upset too. Because this is a case that we see where our, our, our government is being stolen. The government has said that they care more about money than they do about your life. And that is why they are doing everything they can to make this product illegal without outright saying that it is illegal. I'm pissed off. You should be pissed off. You should get everybody pissed off about this. Everybody should be pissed off. We'll be right back. And we are back. Here we go again. Happens every few months. Hand-holding and participation trophies are taking their toll once more on the future of the world. The perpetrators of the overly PC war this time? Law students. Were you recently accused of a violent crime? Unfortunately, your lawyer can't defend you because your case is triggering. That's right, folks. Law students at universities are now opting out of certain parts of their criminal law cases because the topics being discussed are triggering. According to law students talking to the Daily Mail, quote, before the lectures on sexual offenses, which included issues such as rape and sexual assault, we were warned that the content could be distressing and were given the opportunity to leave if we needed to. Now, I should mention that this was taking place at Oxford College. Now, law lecturer Professor Laura Hiano, Hoyano says on the matter, quote, We can't remove sexual offenses from the criminal law syllabus, obviously. If you're going to study law, you have to deal with things that are difficult, unquote. When asked about this issue, an Oxford University spokesman said, The university aims to encourage independent and critical thinking and does not, as a rule, seek to protect students from ideas or material that they may find uncomfortable. However, there may be occasions when a lecturer feels it is appropriate to advise students of potentially distressing subject matter. And my opinion on the matter remains the same that it always has been. The real world does not give trigger warnings. And making these kids comfortable like this and not challenging them on these matters is creating a new generation who will not know how to cope with the most basic issues we face day to day. I'm not going to pretend to understand how it feels to be the survivor of sex abuse because I don't. And for that, obviously, I'm thankful. That being said, how do these kids expect to protect victims of sex crimes if they can't real if they can't handle the, the reality of the crimes in a classroom setting? 
I get trigger warnings in certain settings. I don't like them. I don't agree with them, but I get them. If you're the victim of a rape, reading a graphic passage in a book about rape can be, can be jarring and maybe not something you'd expect in like an English class, but in criminal justice classes, expect to hear all about violence, rapes, drugs, the whole nine yards. And if that's something you can't handle in a classroom setting, you can't handle that in a real world setting when someone's life is on the line. These people who are in criminal justice classes and are triggered by things like sexual violence, I can't help but wonder if they were in a terrible situation that required an attorney and and how they would handle facing their attorney saying something like, I can't take your case because it makes me uncomfortable. It sounds ridiculous. And the reason that it sounds ridiculous is because it absolutely is ridiculous. Obviously, we're not going to be getting rid of trigger warnings anytime soon. But it's time to start corralling where we decide it's acceptable. In a criminal justice class, the trigger warning should be, hey, just a heads up, we're going to be talking about violence and rape today. If any of you find that too much to handle, feel free to sit this class out as you head to the counselor to switch your major. I just can't. I can't wrap my head around this one. This one doesn't make sense to me. Like I said, I get it in certain settings. I I hate trigger warnings. I think they're fucking dumb, but that's because I've never had anything that terrible happen to me. So I don't get it. It's true. I I don't have those kinds of things where I have somebody will mention something and it'll trigger something in my brain and I'll go into a traumatic flashback. That doesn't happen to me. I'm thankful for that. That's a good thing. I've lived a good life, but I just think that it's getting a little bit out of hand at this point. We should not have, we shouldn't be catering and pushing students through in law classes who can't handle cases of law. It, it just, it, it doesn't make sense. It's like if you were to put someone who is, I don't know, say you're, you're deathly allergic to mushrooms. You can't touch mushrooms. If you touch mushrooms, you break out in hives. Okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with you. That's okay. But maybe don't work somewhere where you, uh, you know, handle mushrooms all day because, hey, you can't handle it. It's not for you. And it's not to say that you don't deserve to do some job in some mushroom restaurant. I don't know. Um, this is a loose analogy. But you get what I'm saying. Just because it's there doesn't mean you should go for it. If you can't handle it, if you can't, if you can't handle the, the hypotheticals, there's no way you're going to be able to handle the real world situations of, of being a lawyer and having to, to defend somebody for rape or having to prosecute somebody for rape. If you can't handle just hearing about those cases, violence too, any of that, if you can't handle it in the classroom, you can't handle it in the real world. And it's time to reevaluate, switch your major because that's just not something for you. Now, moving on, a Muslim woman is considering suing the Citadel, a military college in South Carolina, over its dress code policy. The student in question, who is unnamed by the Citadel, excuse me, 
The student in question, who is unnamed by the Citadel, says she must wear a hijab, a veil that covers the head and chest, which is particularly worn by some Muslim women beyond the age of puberty in the presence of adult males outside of their immediate family and non-Muslims, in accordance with her religious practices. Now, a statement from the college president, Lieutenant General John Rosa, explained that the uniform is central to the leadership training at the college as cadets give up their individuality to learn teamwork and allegiance to the Corps, and its leaders concluded that they could not grant an exception to the required dress. Rosa, emphas excuse me, <clears throat> Rosa emphasized their commitment to having a diverse and inclusive campus and their recognition of the importance of cadets' religious beliefs. However, since the Citadel falls under dress codes similar to those of the U.S. Army, it stands to reason that, in order to decide if students should be permitted to wear hijabs or other religious articles in place of a standard uniform, students should refer to AR 600-20, a publication by the U.S. Army regarding equal opportunity rules. According to Section 5-6, a Q accommodating religious practices, subsection 4G, religious headgear may be worn while in uniform if the headgear meets the following criteria. The religious headgear is subdued in color, generally black, brown, green, dark or navy blue, or a combination of these colors. The religious headgear is of a style that can be completely covered by standard military headgear. The religious headgear bears no writing, symbols, or pictures. Wear of the religious headgear does not interfere with the wear of, of proper functioning of protective clothing or equipment. Religious headgear that meets these criteria is authorized irrespective of the faith group from which it originates. Religious headgear will not be worn in place of military headgear under, under circumstances when the wear of military headgear is required. For example, when the soldier is outside or required to wear headgear indoors for a special purpose. Given that the hijab is, in extremely oversimplified terms, a, a hood of sorts, it would not be covered by any interpretation of AR 600-20 as acceptable in uniform. Again, we point to the religious headgear is of a style and size that can be completely covered by standard military headgear. The hijab does not fall into that category. For a quick clarification to anyone who, who may see pictures on the internet of, of soldiers wearing turbans and beards, things that are not in the normal uniform and could not be covered up by headgear, it must be noted that they are chaplains, which is a group of soldiers who have a completely different set of rules and regulations because their main job is to be a religious leader for different soldiers. At the end of the day, this is a non-issue. If a soldier wants special treatment, they pick the wrong profession, and this is no different. And dissenting opinions you find on this matter do not understand the actual rules of the military or simply haven't taken the time to just look them up. If you read through large parts of AR 600-20, you will find that many accommodations are made based off of religion, but this is not one of them. 
Uniformity is a key component to working as a unit, which should be the number one goal of any good military. My final takeaway from this is the following. If you're considering joining the armed forces, do your research. Know what will be expected of you and what accommodations will be made for you, and then make your decision. Always remember that in the army, you are no longer a person. You are a piece of a cohesive unit. You are not a special snowflake. You are a cog in the machine that makes up one of the greatest fighting forces in the world. And that is due largely to the fact that everyone is the same and everyone operates under the same guiding rules. If you want special accommodations to be made just for you, you are no longer a cog, but a wrench thrown into the machine, ruining the whole thing, and have picked the wrong profession to be in. We'll be right back. folks and that wraps up our show for the week i hope you guys enjoyed it head over to the wire and wick click on that contact tab send me an email tell me what you think of the new uh the new first segment this road to regulation that we're going to keep on doing um i'm going to continue this the series that's the word i was looking for earlier the series going to continue this series until we make it all the way up to the fda today and i think that should be maybe two or three more segments uh, coming up to really dive down into everything that's going on with this. So if you guys really enjoyed it, let me know what you think. Um, if you have any suggestions for maybe a topic that could be covered in that in that series, let me know. Uh, I'll look into it and I will either include it or I won't. But uh, your, your, your criticism is always welcome. Your, your, your contributions. I always welcome contributions. So just shoot me an email. Uh, head over to the wirewickpodcast.com, click on that contact tab, send me an email. Let me know what you think of it. Let me know let me know what you think of the show in general, uh, in the direction that the show is going. Uh, let me know what you think. Um, you're gonna be seeing more and more changes as the the months go forward based off of what's going on with the regulations. So let me know what you think about it. Let me know how you feel about the direction that the show is going. I'm really interested to hear from you guys every time that you guys email me, every time that you guys get in contact with me. I love it. I love getting in contact with you guys. Shoot me an email. Again, thewirenwickpodcast.com. Hit that contact tab. Shoot me an email. And that's about all we got for this week. We will be back next week, same time, same place. Until then... 
I'm your host, Chris Carlson. This is the Wire and Wick Podcast. And remember, it's all bullshit. <laughs>